All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out and turn with me to the 17th chapter of the book of John. And that's where um, we are picking up. The 17th chapter of the book of John. I think if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, it's page 903. And so for those of you that were here last week, you know that we, that I kind of ended abruptly. I mean, I just realized like, man, I got more sermon than we got time. And like I said, um, I'm not going anywhere. Hopefully by God's grace, you're not going anywhere. If Jesus comes back, then we'll all know this, right? There won't be any more preaching. And so um, here we are. And so we ended abruptly and I'm going to try not to start abruptly, but it's going to um, if you weren't here last week, there may be a little bit of catching up that you need to do, but I think you'll 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 um, drop right in by the end of the um, by the end of the introduction. I've got a lot going on this morning in my head. I'm pretty jacked. Can you tell? I'm excited. All right, um, John seventeen fourteen through twenty three. Reading this text will not help that at all. But let's let's get it. All right, and like I said, we're even dropping in in the in the middle, but look at what Jesus says. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse number 17, and this will be our focal text, 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's pray. Father, I I pray um, and I lean into the work of your spirit that there are people here whose natural inclination is is they're prone towards condemnation in their heart. That they still don't quite understand what practical sanctification, progressive sanctification is. And that somehow they will think that it affects their adoption. And so I pray against the work of the enemy and a work of people's flesh that they would believe verse number 23 and our our progressive sanctification doesn't touch that. That if we are in you, if we believe in you, then you love us as you loved your son, your perfect son, Jesus. May we have faith to believe that. It's easy for us to see our dirty hands and our lack of spiritual discipline and to believe that somehow you love us less. And so may we believe that. And then there are those in the room whose hearts are prone towards uh, lawlessness. 
who abuse your grace, who think very little of the holiness of God in living a holy life. Lord, may your, may your word come to them very forcefully this morning by the power of the Spirit that it would put the spurs to all of our sanctification. May it put the spurs, may it stoke the fire of all of our sanctification for your glory. We pray that. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. So if you'll notice, if you'll notice in, um, probably in your Bible, if your Bible has headings, um, the heading uh, above this one is uh, probably something about Jesus's high priestly prayer or the high priestly prayer. And so what's that about? Well, we'll start off by way of introduction um, to the whole section by saying that this is, Jesus's, this is Jesus's high priestly prayer. So what's the high priest? Well, the high priest is a, it's a role or a function. It's a person set up in the Old Testament. That in the Old Testament, um, especially in the book of Exodus, for those of you that were tracking with us several years ago when we went through the book of Exodus, you may remember this, that in Exodus, the, it opens up with the children of Israel that are in the people of God. They're in slavery in Egypt and God shows up in a very powerful way through, through judgments upon Egypt, through, through curses upon Egypt. And he, he releases his people, they go into the wilderness and there's a point when God introduces unto them the, the idea of a, a tabernacle. And so all of the people, they're meeting in tents. And so it's like a, a huge tent. We're talking about like, like a million, probably almost a million people. So there's all these tents meeting around, like a little tent city, little tent village. And then the innermost tent, the very center tent is God's tent. And inside the centermost part of God's tent is a section called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, it, it symbolizes God's presence with his people. And in some ways, God's very presence shows up in the Holy of Holies. Now, one of the things about the Holy of Holies is it's forbidden for anyone to go to enter in. In fact, if you enter in and you're not the high priest and you haven't gone through purification, you'd be struck dead when you entered in. So kind of hanging on the outside of this was a huge do not enter, but one day of the year, one person could go in one time and he could make uh, sacrifices on behalf of the people in the very presence of God. That person was the high priest. And so God sets up throughout the book of Exodus, I think as you can see this in Exodus 28, the role and the function of the high priest. And here's what the high priest would do on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the day when he could enter into God's, uh, into God's presence is he would come carrying into God's presence two items. One item would be uh, animal sacrifice. He would come in, they would slay an animal, they would take the blood of that animal and he would carry in on probably like a hyssop on some branches, he would carry in the blood from that slain animal. And the second item that he would come carrying in is he would have a, a golden bowl called a censure, the golden censure, it'd be full of incense. So there would be smoke, you know, incense arising from that. And that was to symbolize the prayers of the people. So the high priest entering in to the centermost place of the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, he's carrying with him two things, blood to make atonement for the people, and he's carrying with him the prayers for, on behalf of the people, being symbolized in this, in this incense. Now the, the outfit was, God is very descriptive in Exodus 28 about the outfit that the high priest is to wear. It's a peculiar outfit. It's a particular outfit, but it's full of symbolism. The outfit's made up of inner garments and outer garments. And on the outer garment, the outermost part of the garment, there is what's called an ephod. 
And the ephod would be just like a, a, a square piece of gold. And the ephod would have two parts to it, a breast piece and a back piece. And the ephod would be tied together with cords. And on the cords where they met on his shoulders, there would be two onyx stones. Now on those two onyx stones, they were told to engrave the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel. So six on each of the stones there. And then on the ephod, on the center part, there would be another 12 stones to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 precious jewels would be on this ephod. So as the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people, sprinkling the blood on the seat of mercy, that's the top part of the, of the um, Ark of the Covenant, right? The very top part's called the, the mercy seat. As he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, as he swung the censure full of prayers, what symbolizes the prayers of the people, he would be shouldering, if you would, the very names of the people. He would be shouldering the, 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 pre, the, the people himself. He would be shouldering them up, the nation of Israel, and he would be representing them. And he would also be carrying them on his heart. So both on his shoulders and over his heart, would be the very, uh, the, the very names, if you would, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. He would be representing them as he goes in. And this is what Jesus is, and we're getting a glimpse of this. That Jesus will, after his, after his resurrection, he will ascend on high and he will enter into, not a symbolic picture of the, the presence of God, but he will enter back into the very presence of the Father, full of glory. He will enter into the Holy of Holies and Jesus will come bearing his own blood to make atonement for his people. And here what we see a glimpse of, Jesus will also enter in offering prayers on behalf of his people. Now, as you listen and as you read and as you look at how the tabernacle is to be constructed and how the temple is to be constructed, there's all sorts of different pieces of furniture and they all have symbolism in it. But one piece of furniture that's missing in the tabernacle and the temple, but is in the presence of, the, of God, the throne room of God is a throne. The high priest would enter in, but there would be no place for the priest to stay. There would be no place for the priest to sit. He would enter in, offer the blood, swing the thing, and then back, back out very humbly, right? And you and I would do the same. But when Jesus enters in, when he ascends on high, when he enters into the Holy of Holies, Jesus goes and then Jesus sits down. He sits down on a throne where he is reigning and ruling and making intercession for us that in some ways, Jesus's present ministry of intercession, Jesus fulfilling the role of the high priest, what Jesus is doing right now is of greater glory than even what Jesus did on the cross. I told you all this before in the past. I'm all about crosses and wear them as symbolism and get tattoos, just don't make it a crucifix. I asked my grandfather, who was a Baptist minister one time, I said, Paul, will you, this is before I was even a believer. And I said, hey, Paul, I'd been at the flea market, the Richwood flea market in Northern Kentucky. And I said, hey, I saw a cross. Would you buy it for me? And he's like, sure, what's it look like? And I said, well, it was a gold cross and it had a silver Jesus on it. My grandfather said, absolutely not. I will not buy that for you. Why? I thought you would like that. I thought that would impress you. He was like, because Jesus was on the cross for a brief moment of time. And today Jesus is not on a cross. Jesus doesn't still feel the nails every time you and I fall. That today Jesus is on a throne, reigning and ruling and making intercession for his people. And Jesus is also poised to return again. 
at the very mention of it, at the drop of a hat, when the father says, now Jesus is poised to return to carry out God's judgment. What's he waiting on? Well, he's waiting on all of his saints to be gathered. He's waiting on all of his people to come to belief in him. That when Jesus stands before the father, just as the high priest, he's representing a people and Jesus is representing his people, the church, and it may be you. That's what that means is maybe Jesus is waiting on you, a wayward, unrepentant, unregenerate sinner like you to repent and to turn and to come to him so that he may represent you before the father. And so that's where Jesus is even right now. He's sitting down in a throne and he will not stay there for eternity. Whenever this is all over and all of the saints and all of the church are gathered and we enter into glory with Jesus and all of us are gathered together, then Jesus will no longer be there, but he'll come from there and eat a meal, this Passover meal with us as his church. The writer of Hebrews says that he is there and he is ever living to make intercession for us. And we get a glimpse in that. We get a glimpse of that. So what's Jesus praying for as he prays in John 17? Well, three things we said that we want to note that Jesus prays for. First, Jesus prays for the Father's glory. Second is he prays for his disciples. These now 11 that are with him. Third thing we said that Jesus prays for is he prays for his church, a future collection of saints that will be ransomed by his blood, that will be gathered together by his blood. And then we said that the disciples' prayer and the church's prayer, they kind of run congruent in John 17. But we could say this, that there are three petitions. So those are the three major headings. Roman number one, two, and three, Father's glory, his disciples, the church. And then under that, if you want, for those of you that like... Uh, to take notes in outline form, it would be big A, would be Jesus is now praying for three petitions in regards to his church. The first petition that Jesus makes in regard to his church is Jesus prays for our security. Verse number 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the church might be fulfilled. And what we said is, this is a picture of what Jesus does to all of his disciples, not just to those 11. That we see that throughout the New Testament, that we are being guarded, we are being kept. As Jude says, even in, in uh, Jude 24, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before him blameless. That's Jesus's role right now as, inter as he gives intercession and the spirit is giving life to that. You are being kept, you are being guarded. Peter says that you are being guarded and your inheritance is also being guarded. It's a picture of being garrisoned. So first he's praying for your security. Second, Jesus is praying for your purity, for the church's purity. We see that in verses 17 through 19. It's centered around the word sanctify. Sanctify them, Jesus prays. Sanctify them in your truth. That's his prayer, for your word is true. And thirdly, that we saw at the end, Jesus from verses 20 through 23, Jesus is praying for our unity. Now, last week we covered security and last week we covered part of unity and this week, I mean, purity. And this week we were supposed to cover unity, but we will cover purity again, part B. And I'm already behind on time, but we'll keep tracking. So next, year, next week we may do purity part three. We'll see, all right. So this, today we are looking at Jesus prays for our purity. If you will, um, just listen to this. This is where this is coming from. We're pulling this out of the text of scripture. Sanctify them, Jesus prays. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. And what we said was the word sanctify that Jesus is using here is the word that means to cut in order for there to be separation. And so I did this last week, I will do it again. I will take the prayer guide and I will cut the prayer guide as to separate a section of the prayer guide from the rest. What Jesus is saying here in the word sanctification, the word sanctify is to, it's to cut them out of the world. So if you will, this is now the world and now this is a section out of the world that belonged to Jesus. That's what it means to cut them in order for there to be separation. We've been cut, we've been called out of the world. And now what's happening in this prayer is the, the prayer is now making that separation a reality. It's not just, hey, you've been called out and now this is some, some theory or some theology. Now what Jesus is praying is make this separation. We've been, they've been called out, cut out of the world. Now make this separation a reality. That is what he's praying. This is the prayer for personal holiness of every believer. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm leaving them in the world. They are left in the world, but they are separated from the world by nature of the calling that I've called them to, by the nature of sanctification. They are in the world, but they are not of the world. As Stephen Lawson said, their boat is in the water, but there's no water in the boat. That's what he's talking about here. I'm leaving them in the world, but there shouldn't be any worldliness in them. And now the process at which God is going about taking and calling out the world in us is the process of sanctification. That God is a holy God and a holy God demands a holy people. And that is what he's doing. That is what he's praying here. He's praying for a cleansing. Sanctification, same word with which we would get cleansing. It's to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. It's to make them, what he's praying is, make them holier than they already are. And last week we talked about the three aspects or three distinctions that we can make in regards to sanctification. The first one we talked about was positional sanctification. And that take, if you are a believer in Christ, that is taking place in a moment in your past. If you're saved, then there is a moment in your past, a moment when you were, a moment when you were regenerated by the spirit of God, you were sanctified. You were set apart of this evil world and you've been consecrated unto God. You were positionally taken out of the world you were set into Christ, united to him, and this will never be repeated. This is immediate. Christ's righteousness, Christ's holiness is now accredited. It's now counted to you. You've not earned it. You've not merited it. It's the free grace of God that has come through your faith in him. You've been forgiven of all your past sins. You've been forgiven of your present sins. You've been forgiven of your future sins. And on top of that, you've now been also given Christ's righteousness. Christ's perfect track record is now accredited to you. The root of our positional sanctification is found in our justification. It's judicial. But I'm not just talking about your justification. We're talking about your sanctification. The word used for sanctification is the same Greek word that's used for saint. Same word. It is now you are considered a saint. I have a dear loved one that I love so much and she will oftentimes say about a fellow believer, well, she's no saint, but she's a good Christian. I'll be like, if she's a good Christian, if she's a Christian, then she is a saint. And it's hard probably to have a preacher as a son, right? <laughs> right, amen, mom. It's probably hard for that. 
But that's the truth, that if you're a believer in Christ, you are a saint. Um, Martin Luther said, you are simultaneously a saint and a sinner, right? That's what you are. You're simultaneously a saint who still sins, but positionally you are declared to be a saint. So whenever you read in the book of the Bible, like in the book of Ephesians, to the saints who are at the church of Ephesus, you're included in that as a saint. And that's a position. That's not something, again, you've merited. That's not something you've won. That's something that's been given to you positionally. You are a saint. But where we are this week is we're talking about progressive sanctification. That's positional sanctification. That's in your past. If you're a true believer of Christ, that's, that's in your past. Now we're talking about progressive sanctification that is your present. This is your lifelong pursuit of holiness. This is where you and I are increasingly become holier experientially by the work of the Spirit using the Word of God. It's growing us into Christ-likeness. If you are positionally sanctified, then you will be progressively sanctified. If you are positionally sanctified, then you will be progressively sanctified that the Bible knows nothing of of, of the lifelong carnal Christian that our culture knows. Like we make categories sometimes in our culture, sometimes even as parents, we make categories because of the lifestyle our children are living and say, well, they're again, they're a good person, but they're no saint and they're just a carnal Christian. And the Bible knows nothing of that person. Now the Bible also knows nothing of the perfect Christian. Perfected sanctification comes after death or when Christ returns. That's the third point. We can go ahead and put that up. Perfected sanctification will occur. That's when our sanctification is made perfect. It will occur when you see Jesus. Either you will die and open up your eyes and you will see Jesus or Jesus will return and you will see him in the fullness of their glory. And then the progressive sanctification ends. It is bookended. It started in your justification. It's bookended in your glorification. There is an end to it, but it will not end in this lifetime. It will not end here apart from you seeing Christ. The Bible knows nothing of the lifelong carnal Christian, that our sanctification, our progressive sanctification is rooted in our regeneration. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of words out there. Maybe some of you, again, oh, we said this last week, like, hey, if you can, under, if you, like, if you can go, this is what I said last week, if you can go to Starbucks, and you can order a Froca Mocha Choca and you can walk out with said Froca Mocha Choca, then like you can understand basic theology. And this is basic theology. You can understand what sanctification means and regeneration means and justification means and glorification means. And if you don't understand that, then man, that's okay. Come to me and say, hey, Andy, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I mean, I'd been a Christian for five or six years, but the church that I kind of grew up in, they didn't use terminology like that. It wasn't doctrinal, biblical preaching and teaching. It was a lot of what I call shucking and jiving. So when I went to Bible college, my first semester I almost flunked out because I didn't understand what the, what the teachers were saying. I was like, I've never heard these words. Where are they coming from? And I guess everybody else in there had already like been homeschooled and Christian academy and they knew what, they, what he was talking about, but I didn't have a clue. And I went up to my professor and was like, I don't have a clue what you're saying can you help me? And he gave me a little uh, pocket dictionary. He told me, go, actually, he didn't give me nothing. He told me, go buy in the bookstore a pocket dictionary. And for the next seven years, because it took me seven years to get a four-year degree in Bible college, I, I was that smart. They, say me to, they told me to stay extra. I, I carried this little thing in my book bag, whatever it is. And there were times where the, where the teacher would say something, I'd be like, looking it up. 
but I hope you're tracking with me. It's, it's based upon, when I said regeneration, what I'm talking about there is you must be born again. In John chapter three, we covered that. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. What must a man do to enter into eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And later on, Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. But he's talking about you must undergo a transformation of the spirit. That isn't something that you muster up. That's a work of God by his grace in your life where you are made new. But the new covenant found in the old covenant and in the prophecies of the new covenant, the, the emphasis of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit is going to do a work on the heart and the mind and the soul of the human where you now love God and love the things of God. You're gonna get a brand new heart, a brand new through the, through the Holy Spirit coming and residing and living inside of you. You are going to be made new. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's positional sanctification in Christ, united to Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. That's regeneration. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's progressive sanctification. The process of the old dying out and the new coming on. That's the genesis of progressive sanctification. It's found in the indwelling Holy Spirit coming into your heart and your life. So let me just ask you, as Jesus asked Nicodemus, have you been born again? Because if you haven't yet been born again, if you're not genuinely saved and you try to live out this progressive lifestyle, this progressive sanctification, it is only gonna lead you to frustration and anger toward the Lord. Because you're gonna try in your own strength and your own power to be something that you never can be apart from the Lord. It's gonna lead you down a road probably of legalism. We're on the out, and we're gonna talk about that in just a second, where outwardly you're gonna look like a Christian, but inwardly you're not gonna love the Lord and you're not gonna be full of love. In fact, you're gonna be bitter and angry and grumpy. A lot of us have seen people like go to a restaurant. If you wanna see that, go to a restaurant um, after the service and see a lot of people in there snipping and biting and whatever at the waitress, just no grace in their life. You'll see it show up. What's the, what's the issue there? It's probably, they're probably not saved. I mean, that's a strong statement. They're probably not. They're probably legalistic. They look it on the outside. They may have their hairdo all up, wear a dress, wear a skirt, whatever it may be. They may be like, Peter, Lord, I've never but what's really never happened is they've never un undergone a change from the heart. There's no love in them, no love for God and no love for others. My parents, they bought a uh, house a few years back in, in Florida. So they're now, they now are the, whatever you call it, snowbirds. So they go down there. And so um, when my, my parents bought this house, uh, they, my, my mom came home, my dad stayed, and my dad decided he's gonna kind of fix the house up. And so my, my dad's there uh, kind of alone at night. My dad began to notice that of an evening, there was one of those big, tall, white sand cranes. You know, the Florida sand cranes, this crane would show up every evening in their yard and he would go up to the window and this crane would just begin peeking into the window. My dad was like, this is so, so odd. And so this go, went on for some time. And then my dad had to ask some questions to the previous homeowner about the home. And so my dad gets in contact with the lady and he's asked her questions. And he said, hey, by the way, almost every evening, one of those big white sand cranes shows up and looks in through the window. And she's like, oh yeah, that's probably our fault. She's like, he's looking for cheese. 
Like we fed this guy, we fed him cheese and he's probably looking for me and my kids to feed some cheese. And so later on that evening, that sand crane showed up and that sand crane was looking in through the windows and somebody that said, he opened the door and he said, hey, Mr. Bird, I like cheese too. No more free cheese, beat it. <laughs> and shut the door. Like he thought he was gonna feed you some cheese. No, 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 he ain't gonna feed him some cheese. Like I got bad news for you, Mr. Bird. There's, new, there's a new homeowner here. There's a new person taking up residence and there's no more free cheese. Listen to me, that's what the flesh does. That's what sin does. He shows up and peeks in through your life and he's expecting a free handout of cheese. The apostle Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. And a lot of you, you're not growing in progressive sanctification because you're still making provision for the flesh. You're still packing the flesh, it's lunch and handing it out free sins and free indulgences and free cheese, right? Instead of saying, hey, guess what? There's a new homeowner called the Holy Spirit that's residing on the inside. And there's no more free lunches for you, Mr. Flesh. Sorry about your luck, now beat it, right? Some of us, we need to grow in that. That's progressive sanctification. It's the direction of your life towards the holiness of God. It's a slow process. It's a painful process, but it is the process that every person undergoes. It doesn't mean you're living a perfect life, but the direction of your life is toward the holiness of God. Now listen, we can bristle up and we can shrink back when we begin to talk about the personal holiness. We begin throwing the word around about holiness. When we begin throwing that around, a lot of people say, hold on, pastor, let's don't get legalistic. Folks will say, yeah, we can talk about that, but let's be careful here. Let's don't talk about legalism. Let's don't talk about following the law. Let's be careful because we're gonna fall into legalism. And that can't be true, but there are two ways to miss biblical sanctification. There are two ways to avoid progressive sanctification. The first one is legalism. And let me give for you a definition of legalism. Legalism is the attempt to gain either your justification or your positional sanctification through your progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification for the legalist, it does not come through their union with Christ. It is not something that is alien to them. A saint is not a position of grace, but it's a position of merit. The legalist believes that they have earned the position and the place of being a saint by keeping the law, by doing their spiritual disciplines, by being a morally good person. The legalist attitude is entitlement rather than gratitude. I've won this, I've earned this, I've done this. Rather than gratitude, it's by grace. If you wanna know whether you're a legalist or not, hang out and when suffering hits, it will expose your legalism. Because when suffering hits, the legalist will say, what have I done to deserve this? Hold on a minute. I've served the Lord, I've loved the Lord, I've gone to church, I've given, I've tithed, I've done all of these things. And yet now what, there's this suffering in my life? And you'll ignore all of the verses that Jesus promises us suffering in this life. In this world, you will have tribulation. We just read that. We just preach that. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I'm greater than this world. This world is not all that there is. Legalism and hypocrisy usually go hand in hand. 
Legalism is an outward conformity to holiness. It is what I call image crafting. It is the Instagram and the Facebook, the social media of the Christian life. It's looking the part, but not being the part. There's been a change in behavior, but not a change of the heart. The motivation is to win and to earn God's love and God's blessing. It's duty-driven. It's not based upon a love for the Lord and delight in the, in the Lord. Obedience is relegated just to action and deeds. It neglects the heart and it ne- neglects the attitudes of the heart. And obedience, if it is present, is generally a reluctant obedience or an angry obedience. The inward motivation for the legalist is to glory in self, to glory in religion, to glory in tradition, and not the glory of God. Obedience isn't based upon desire but on duty, like I said, it's usually angry outward conformity. It's the problem of the Pharisees. Jesus says, you wash the outside of the cup, but you neglect the inside. You're whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you look good, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus isn't calling for a a negligence in outward appearances, But what he's saying is holiness begins in the heart, in the inward places. That what's on the inside should be evident on the outside. The first way to miss the gospel is legalism, but there's a second way to miss, I'm sorry, to miss biblical sanctification, progressive sanctification, and that is found in licentiousness. Another word for this would be antinomianism or just lawlessness. It means simply we go against, antinomianism means going against the law, no law. That the licentious or the lawless person says, there is no law, there is no rule of God. I am free and freedom is the cry or the excuse of the antinomian. They base their sanctification on their perceived freedoms, often abusing freedom and falling into sin. And when sin is present, there isn't real contrition. There's no real repentance because they have a low view of sin and an overly zealous focus on freedom. The truth is that a presumed freedom that does not honor Christ is actually bondage. And oftentimes what feels like bondage to Christ is actually freedom in its purest form. The lawless person, it's not that they have too high of a view of freedom. The truth is they still have too low of a view of freedom. And as Paul writes the book of Romans, Paul runs into this in Romans 6. It seems like if Paul would be writing, he'd be writing to legalists, but he doesn't. He actually begins to write to the licentious person. And we find this in Romans 6. And what he's saying is throughout Romans 1 through 5, the end of 5, Paul's building out the case of the gospel is built upon grace. The gospel frees you. It positional frees you. Your position in Christ is not based upon your merit, your duty, what you do, your discipline, any of those things, not your own personal holiness, but it's based upon faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And you can almost feel the crowd saying, wait a minute, Paul, you can't preach that. Wait a minute, Paul, you can't say that. Because if you say that, then what people are gonna say, okay, then if where I sin, grace all the, all the more abounds, then why don't I just sin, the, sin more so I can get more grace? 
Like, does it, that kind of makes sense. If, if where sin, he says, abounds, grace all the more abounds and let me sin more so that I can get more grace and more grace and more grace. And then what Paul, Paul doesn't say, hey, that's just ignorant. That's not what he says. But what Paul's argument in the chapter six is how can you, your old man has died to sin and now you have a new man that's been resurrected. But then Paul takes it into the area of freedom. And you're free, he says, because the old man, the old slave is dead. You are now free, but guess what? You're not free to sin, you're free unto the Lord. So now when you understand that, you're still a slave is what Paul says, but now you're a slave to righteousness. That's why I said that what feels like bondage to Christ is actually freedom in its purest form, that when you understand that, that we are slaves, slaves unto God, that we are his slaves. He has ransomed us and rescued us. To, we're slaves that, to serve him. As Paul says in Romans 6, now you are to present your instruments, your body, all the totality of your life. Present that before God as his slaves. What we pray and what we say is now, Lord, use me. May I be bound to you and may you, may you use me. And we are still slaves. We are slaves to a new master. He's a loving and kind and gracious and glorious master. A master who calls us both servants, both slaves and sons. And it's slavery to him that leads to sanctification and which leads to eternal life. Or you're living in slavery to sin, which only leads to death. Let me say that again, because I know I'm talking a lot. I know there's a lot happening here, but let me say this, that you're a slave to something. There is no such thing as total freedom as we would think about it. It's what Paul's saying in chapter six. This isn't me making this up. This is the word of God. And he says, you're either a slave to your sin or you're a slave to God. And as a slave to your sin, you're either presenting your instruments as slaves of unrighteousness, or you are presenting your body, you're presenting your instruments as slaves to righteousness. This over here only leads to death. This over here is what leads to eternal life. Now, as we think about legalism and licentiousness, let me just say something to the Point Community Church as a word of warning. That as I thought about this even last week, I really wanted to bring this before you. And I'm speaking mostly to folks who have been a, who, who have been a member of the Point Community Church, part of this Point Community Church um, from the beginning or early on, especially if you've been here um, five years and, and, and before, then I'm gonna speak this to you that we as the Point Community Church, we began as a church who were like refugees from legalistic traditional church, me included. That I grew up in a somewhat legalistic church. And whenever I heard the gospel message, it freed me from that. And you and I, as the Point Community Church, we began a church and it was like a it was like a makeshift raft, right? That we were like trying to get off of the island of legalism. We made this makeshift raft we called the factory and we paddled as fast and as hard as we could away from legalism to get as far away from it as we could. But if we wash up on the shore of licentiousness, we've still missed biblical sanctification. We've still missed the gospel. We've still missed Jesus. That may we as a church, may we be known 
as a people of grace, a people of freedom, and a people of holiness unto the Lord. That you and I, we have been predestined, not just for heaven, but we have been predestined for Christ's likeness. That's what Paul says in Romans, the eighth chapter. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If your understanding of the gospel leads you to emphasize that now I'm free to drink beer and to cuss like a sailor, you've missed the gospel. The gospel frees us. It frees us, completely frees us. We are completely free, and yet we are slaves. We are slaves to righteousness. As we sing the song, the great hymn, Come thou fount, O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. There's a deep understanding of grace. That grace binds us to the Lord and it binds us to his will and it binds us to the revelation of his word and the revelation of his word, as we even see here, the means of sanctification is his word and we submit to everything that the word has for us. In fact, let's look at that. What is the means of sanctification? The means of sanctification, Jesus prays, is truth. Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them in truth. And what is truth? It's not something subjective. It's not what you feel is truth. It's something objective. It's your word is truth. The means of sanctification is God's revealed written word. That God's word is truth. God's word is reality. It is God's revelation for the way that things really are. The Bible informs us. The Bible does not contain everything that is true. There are certainly things that are true outside of God's word. Maybe that's found on Facebook. Maybe that's found on YouTube. YouTube sometimes hits it, sometimes doesn't. Um, probably next week, I'm gonna change the brakes on the old Mazda. We'll see how it goes, right? Growing as a man, my dad's got a bunch of tools. I'm gonna try to change the brakes in the Mazda. I'm not gonna go to the Bible to see how to change the brakes on my Mazda because it's not gonna be in there. It's gonna say, do everything decently in order. It's probably gonna speak to my tendency to want to cuss like a sailor while I'm changing the brakes of the Mazda, but it's not gonna tell me how, but there's true things found out in the world that may tell me how to change the brakes on my Mazda. But yet everything in the Bible that we find, it's not just that everything in the Bible is true. Everything in the Bible is, is truth is what he's saying here. It's reality. And what I mean by that is this, that man is what God says man is. The predicament of man is what God says man is. And what is that predicament? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he's a good old boy. All have sinned. But I'm a good person. I help ladies across the street. I got a good heart. I've got good intentions. I got good motivations. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even good people. Sin is what God says sin is. That's not up for us. That's not up to, for debate. God has revealed it in his word, in black and white, in the book that you hold, hopefully in your lap or on your iPhone or on your Android device or whatever else you may have. It is spelled out in there what sin is. The way of salvation is what God says it is. The life of holiness is what God says it is. 
Truth is not debatable. It's not questionable. It's not relative. It does not change from culture to culture, from individual to individual. Truth is black and white, and it's written on the pages of Scripture. The Bible is the means of sanctification. Just as I read earlier in Romans 8, 29, it is the means by which we are being conformed into the image of Christ. We, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be in the image of Christ. It is the means by which the spirit is molding and chiseling you to look like Christ. When the great sculptor Michelangelo took a chunk, chunk of marble and a hammer and chisel and he, and he, and he made the, the, the statue of David, they asked him, was like, how did you do that? And he said, it was really simple. I just removed all of the pieces that didn't look like David. And that's what God is doing through the spirit with his word. He is removing all of the pieces from you that don't look like Jesus. It's not something mystical. It's not something magical. It isn't something ethereal. It's something real. It's something tangible. It's something concrete. That as you read, study, sit under the preaching of God's word, as you meditate on it, think about it, memorize it, sing it, as you receive it, believe it, understand it, embrace it for what it is, the very word of God, you are being conformed and sanctified by it to Christ's likeness. It has the power to change every bit of you. It progressive sanctification by God's word is holistic sanctification. It is grace that is transforming the entirety of you. Your heart is being made new. Your affections are being stirred. You're being taught to love the things of God, to show genuine interest in the things of God and to have a disdain and a hatred for even the things that are stained by sin. Your mind is being renewed by God's word. You're beginning to think rightly about God and you're beginning to think rightly about sin. Sin is never something that we celebrate or take pride in, but we bring our feelings into alignment with the word that we may hate what he hates that we may disdain what he disdains, that we may love what he loves, that we're learning the truth from his word. Our wills are being surrendered and compliant. We choose submission, that whenever we want to bristle at the word, and oftentimes we want to be bristle at the word, but we humbly submit to the word. It changes us, it transforms us. Our actions are being brought into conformity. And this is what it means to grow in Christ's likeness. Peter says his babies desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow by it. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that we may receive the pure milk of God's word and that his word may grow us, that we may grow to hate sin and to love him more and more, that we may grow in personal holiness, that we may grow unto the Lord and unto Christ's likeness. Spurgeon said this, about the Bible. He says, this book has wrestled me. This book has smitten me. This book has comforted me. This book has smiled on me. This book has frowned on me. This book has clasped my hands. This book has warmed my heart. This book weeps with me and sings with me. It whispers to me and it preaches to me. This book, it maps my way and holds up my goings. It was to me the, the young man's best companion and it is still my morning and evening chaplain. It is a living book all over alive from its first chapter to its last words. It is full of strange mystic vitality, which makes it have a preeminence over every other writing for every child.
of God. Let's pray. Lord, may we grow in our love for your word. May we be able to say, as Spurgeon has said, that your word has smiled upon us, it has frowned upon us. It is the way that, the, that your holiness and your life and your righteousness illuminated to us. How can a young man or young woman keep their way pure by guarding it with your word? I pray that you would guard us by your word. I pray that we would hide your word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. I pray for a church that is submissive to your word. Submissive to your word. I pray for a church that would continue to to hunger for your word, Lord. I'm thankful that we are there and I pray for that all the more that we would hunger and we would thirst more and more for your word, for the preaching and the teaching and the study of your word. For your name we pray this. Amen.